like a lot of the criminals that came to the fore in the 70s and the 1980s, Larry Dunn and, and some of his brothers all ended up in a breeding ground for, the, for criminals in terms of the reform school system. Larry Dunn became, I suppose, the first high-profile drugs godfather in the country. I mean, the Dunns became the public face of the heroin epidemic. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the first godfather of Irish crime, the man who unleashed heroin on Dublin's impoverished housing estates and flat complexes. Larry Dunn found fame as the drug lord responsible for the destruction of entire communities and whose greed took parents from their children and turned countless young people into thieves and prostitutes. But when he lay down to die between two wheelie bins in the front garden of a relative's home, gone were all the trappings of the wealth that had once afforded him a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce, a mansion on a hill and everything that money could buy. Today, following a coroner ruling that he died from self-inflicted stab wounds, I'm talking with Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about the rise and the fall of Flash Larry Dunn. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. To describe where Larry Dunn really came from, we have to go all the way back to a Dublin that we would hardly even recognise now. Um, and one where there was a lot of families, particularly in Dublin, living in tenements. Um, late 1940s, I think he was born into a family, a large family now. Yeah, he was. Um, Larry Dunn was raised in, in Rutland Avenue in near the Dolphins Barn area. Um, the, Dunn, uh, the Dunns were, of course, in their day would become the most notorious family probably in Dublin. Um, and Larry Dunn came from an extremely troubled background. Um, his own father, who was also known as Christopher, but also known as Bronco, um, was was married to a woman called Ellen Dunn. Um, they had 16 kids. And um, uh, Christopher Bronco Dunn was a big, big drinker. Um, and like many of his sons, uh, had come, uh, basically ended up in prison. He served a, a prison term for manslaughter for after a woman or a, a, another man looked uh, at his wife in a, in a way. He got in a fight, he killed a man. Um, mm. So the Dunn, Larry Dunn and his brothers grew up in a very chaotic environment by all accounts. Um, both parents were very big drinkers. They were devoted to their mother, but the father was in and out. Of, of prison um, and they were back and forth to, to England where they had a lot of family. Um, so it was a chaotic background and mm. I suppose like a lot of the criminals that came to the fore in the 70s and the 1980s, um, Larry Dunn and, and some of his brothers all ended up in, you know, what, what became a, a breeding ground for, the, for criminals in terms of the, the reform school system. In other words, things were hard back then, right, for, for most. Obviously, there would have been a great divide between rich and poor. But um, if you were born into a family of 16 where you're into grinding poverty as it is, and then to add to that, you have an alcoholic parent 
who ends up going to jail. So the mother was left with all those kids to try and rear. Like, was there, I'm testing your social history knowledge here now, but was there, um, was there social welfare in the way there is now? Or what, how did these people survive back then? Well, there, there, probably, um, there probably was social welfare, but you have to re- remember that, um, that the reform school system there wasn't social supports. What there was was children were taken into care if they got in trouble. So you had, yeah. obviously, like we all know the, the, the brutality that went on in those regimes, but kids were taken in, remember, put in those reform schools for truancy, for, mm. for um, you know, very, very petty shoplifting. So the way that society chose to deal with these social problems was to lock people up, basically. Mm. Lock up very, very young children. Um and, you know, you've seen it in terms of the, the Martin Cahill gang and other criminals that those reform schools, a lot of the people who've come out and subsequently gone involved in criminality have said this was the brutality in there drove them towards uh, serious crime. So the Dunn family were, were living in, uh, there was obviously chaos in the home. There was obviously deprivation. And um, although, uh, by all accounts, they 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 were not uh, antisocial children within the community, there were not problems of, of of violence within the community or anything like that. But there certainly was um, uh, criminality was going around, you know. Yeah. So the the sort of the notes on the old police files would say that Larry Dunn was known to Gardy from the age of ten when he and his brothers got involved in petty crime. Now, at that stage, we can surmise that was probably to help feed the family. You know what I mean? So a lot of that, and that happens in other families we've spoken about. But by the 1970s, it would suggest that they were a well-organised family-centred robbery gang. So they have kind of moved by their late teens, early 20s into an organised crime gang rather than a disorganised one. Yeah, so I mean, in the late, if you look through the history of organised crime, we all know the way it went. But the 1970s was a boom in in armed robbery operations. And Larry Dunn was at the forefront of one of the more prominent armed robbery gangs, um, along with his brother, uh, Christopher, also known as Bronco Dunn, um, who became, uh, before Larry became high profile, Christy Bronco Dunn was a, a very high prof, profile figure in, in, in the Dublin criminal underworld and had become involved in Sarah Era, one of the, the prototypes for, for, for the uh, paramilitary operations. Done, done many, many interviews um, over the years, Christopher, mm. and still does them uh, periodically. So they came into the 1970s and Larry Dunn was a, a significant armed robber and um, but as the 1970s came to a close, he started dabbling in cannabis uh, primarily um, and I think discovered that this is where the money was to be made. And actually, in the same way as when he was growing up in the tenement Dublin, I suppose, there were outside influences in play at the same time as as he was, you know, rising up the ranks as, a, as an armed robber. Um, the policing of Ireland was largely being dragged towards the border at that stage with the upsurge in, in um, paramilitary violence. And also there was very large concern about the amount of armed robbery gangs. And there had been a shooting of a police officer which had sort of um, 
come with national outrage about this. And there was a big, heavy crackdown on the armed gangs. And actually, in the same way as, uh, you know, they, they rushed to another area of criminality, a lot of them wanted to move away from armed robbery. It was seen as very high risk, very high likelihood of being caught and being sent away for a long, long time. And they were kind of looking for an easier way of making money. Um, you had also then issues happening very, very far away, which would result in a heroin flood into Europe. And that was the um, the Shah of Iran was deposed by Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan and a lot of the rich had to gather whatever wealth they could by buying up heroin and bringing it to Europe where they then resold it to try and translate it back into money. They weren't allowed to leave that region with cash or transfer any of their money out of it. So that's what happened. So it was a bit of a perfect storm. You have Larry Dunn moving into cannabis and then obviously as he got into that, seeing the the potential for heroin. Yeah, so I mean, like I think at the time in the in the late uh, when the when the heroin boom for really started off, I think there was 24 officers assigned to the Garda drugs unit. I mean, that was the extent of it. So, like I mean, people I think at that stage thought the armed robbery armed robbery gangs were were a threat to the state and that cannabis and drug dealing was nearly a victimless crime. Um, so that, that the, the state was absolutely not focused on it, um, but heroin, uh, obviously, as you said, it flooded flooded through Europe through those various geopolitical circumstances, and in particular, it, it went to the UK and Ireland almost simultaneously. Um, there was obviously no network for investigating that sort of stuff, and the heroin epidemic spread rapidly. I mean, if you're talk, thinking at the time, I think. There was one treatment centre, you know, in the in the whole of the country with nine beds in, in Jervis Street. And that was the extent of it. 24 guards, nine beds uh, in an addiction centre. And uh, Larry Dunn became, I suppose, the first uh, high profile uh, drugs godfather in the country. Mm, mm, very quickly. I mean... Interestingly, the heroin spread first, I think, through Dunleary. He started dealing out around Dunleary. And then it moved in towards Hardwick Street Flats, Fatima Mansions. And of course, Ballymun, which was sitting there ripe for the pickings, it had been a social housing disaster. There was huge unemployment. Um, You know, a lot of kids would have been coming from families where there were addiction issues anyway. Um, And they were roaming around basically with nothing to do and depressed, you know, let's be be frank about it. But there's an interesting little bit of audio that I heard. To me, it was just, it's just amazing to, to, to listen to it now when we see what happened with heroin. And it was taken around Hardwick Street flats and it was interviews with people who had decided the birth of the concerned parents against Drugs movement happened in the Hardwick Street area, but the RTE had gone down to interview some people about it and what was happening. And they talked about stamping out heroin. That, you know, they actually really believed at that point all those people that were, you know, volunteering for the par- the the um, the Concerned Parents Against Drugs movement, they believed that by pushing out the dealers and by, you know, just policing their states, they were going to stamp out heroin. Yeah, 
I mean, I think if you look back and say the armed robbery gangs in the 1970s, you know, although people don't never, the general public never approved the criminality, they had a bit, a generally benign effect on the communities where they came from. Um, there was also a great tradition of not, you know, although burglaries were occurring, they would occur outside of those communities. But um, when the heroin epidemic struck and, you know, I kind of vaguely remember hearing about it, everybody heard about it, it all of a sudden, it, it you know, it implanted a load of petty crime and obviously tragic deaths, you know, uh, all within those communities. And there was open drug dealing on the streets of Dublin in a way that had never occurred before. Um, you know, but yeah, the community, it was, it, it came quickly. Um, the communities uh, certainly tried to protect themselves and um, to push it out. But, you know, you could, yeah, you can look back and think um, there was a, a naivety about, uh, you know, about that. that just that a lack of be, understanding, you know, just a lack of understanding about what sort of a cancer it was in a way, you know, that that they, they just felt that policing it maybe could stamp it out. I mean, heroin was was bigger than everything, wasn't it? It was bigger than policing. It was bigger than any, you know, any concerned parents group. It caused massive social problems, and they, and of course, it, like you know, it led to intergenerational problems where you know young kids were being raised effectively without parents, and a lot of that burden was being placed on older grandparents, and um, and you know it really created a vicious cycle of 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 inequality, really, and um, you know, so I mean, the Duns became the public face of of the heroin epidemic. Um, yeah, you know, and very much in the background, back to Larry Dunn, because not only was he targeted by the concerned parents against drugs, but he actually cheekily showed up at some of their meetings and tried to sort of fight his corner and say, "Look, you're dealing, you know, you're 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 selling toilet rolls up on uh, Henry Street. I'm just dealing something else. I'm just doing the same job as you." He tried to actually defend himself, and uh, I think he was seen as a, quite a scary character, but he was the first godfather. He was the first big spender. He was making all the money to network of suppliers. He was raking in the cash. He he was from living in a in a council property, but he bought a big big house up in the Dublin mountains. Um, he travelled around Dublin city centre in a chauffeur driven car. He always had women on his arms. He ordered champagne in the nightclubs. He was living it up. He yes, I mean I think really what what undid him was the purchase of a house in Sandyford. You know he he you know if you think back now it's such a different world. He he just had a hundred thousand euro or punts in his Pounds, yeah in, in his bank account and he just went and bought a, a sort of a, a house in, on Woodside Road in May nineteen eighty two. You know he didn't have to produce you know, that I was a director yeah. of this company or, you know, I won this in the lotto or my aunt left it to me. He just had a big wedge of cash and went to bought a house. That'd be worth a couple of million today. Um, and that became a kind of a, a symbol of, of, of where Ireland was at that time um, as the debt started to mount. And here's a guy buying this house. And of course, Charlie Hyde then uh, famously had a meeting with the, the, the Garda commissioner at the time um, that's well documented and said, I want I want the Duns behind bars in the next 18 months. And I think that the purchase of that house had kind of inspired that uh, 
that kind of outrage. I mean, you know, if you look back now compared to where we are now, you know, it can seem they were almost, although they were professional and making a lot of money, they were almost amateur operations as well. I mean, it was it was mostly what they call mule carriers. And there wasn't shipments coming in from South America and complex logistics. They were basically, Larry was sending um, women with, you know, young women with almost no convictions to Amsterdam, Paris or London, and they'd collect the heroin and bring it back. Many of them who owed him money or had racked up debts. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's, that, that was the operation, but there was a huge markup, obviously, um, straight off that they were chopping down the drugs. And, you know, Larry, uh, of course, you know, if you think now, Nicola, with EncroChat phones and all the precautions people take and all of that, Larry, Larry Dunn's uh, real trick was, of course, the famous, the most, well, one of the most famous comments associated with, with, with him was, Larry doesn't carry. And that yeah. was that was his uh, his anti-detection uh, technique. He just wouldn't carry the drugs. Mm, but he wouldn't but he touch them. Wouldn't touch them. And that that was that was probably enough for him almost mm. to be untouchable um, mm-hmm. at the time. For a, for a while. But apart from pissing off Charlie Hawhey by buying a big house, um, he also made w- another big mistake when I say he didn't touch the drugs, he didn't touch the big consignments that were coming in, but he liked to have his own little supply. And he started taking drugs and he became sloppy. And he became a heroin addict himself, you know, a slave to his own supply. He, um, at the same time that that Hahi had made that declaration, the uh, drug squad, what existed of it was they upped their game. They were given more resources. They put done under surveillance and members of his gang. And eventually they stormed his property in his council house now, uh, not not the big fancy one up in the Dublin mountains. And there they found a big consignment of drugs. He had let his guard down and he'd used his own property uh, for, for a storage facility. Um, and that was the beginning of the end for him. Yeah, he, he was caught. It was the drugs were hidden in a, in a pillowcase. Uh, you know, it probably wasn't one of his bigger supplies. It was, I think, 50 to 60,000 uh, euro punts worth, obviously, at the time. Um, but that was enough to initiate uh, criminal proceedings against them. Um, but, you know, it didn't go quietly or straightforwardly, the criminal proceedings. Um, you know, so initially uh, there was a, he was brought to court and there was a, a verdict could not be reached. Um, mm, a hung jury. A hung jury because one juror hung, uh, held out and that also inspired a lot of coverage. Was was a jury nobbled? This went, this this became a big issue as well, and it actually ultimately led to a change in the in the legal status where majority verdicts were accepted. But um, eventually, then Larry Dunn did come to court. Um, he went through the, the 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 initial proceedings. He went through a couple of days of the trial, um. And then when it looked like it really wasn't going his way, he was out on bail at the time. Um, he At lunchtime in the court proceedings, he nipped down to a pub just down the road from the courts, changed his clothes and went on the run. To Portugal? Well, initially, I think he went to a safe house in Crumlin. I mean, there was absolute uproar in the country. 
initially went to a, a safe house in Crumlin and then seems to have ended up in County Leitrim of all places. Um, seemed to have uh, been spotted. I think it was actually 1983 initially because he was eventually only jailed in 85 having been two years on the run. So that case was 1983. So he seemed to have been spotted going down to Shannon in a boat at one stage and um, mixed up with some sort of uh, hippie commune as well at some point uh, before getting out of the country and going to Spain, um, where he was on the run for uh, a period of time, but eventually was picked up in, in, uh, in, by a Portuguese immigration officer who looked at his passport and figured out it was, fr- it was, it was you know, a fraudulent one and eventually he was deported back to Ireland where he was he served a 14-year sentence for that drug seizure. Um, yeah, jailed in 1985. Um, I have a feeling that that day that he was brought to court, he may have punched one of our colleagues. Yeah, I mean... He, Liam O'Connor. He, he did. I mean, it was one of the, uh, <laughs> the most famous pictures, though it was always... Uh, this, yeah, it was a famous picture of... of of our uh, photographer getting a getting a box um in the nose the, in the nose yeah. <laughs> and um it's but, always the poor sunday world you get uh, isn't it like yeah it is it is i mean sh- shoot the messenger why don't they i mean yeah i mean exactly um but there was it there was a, it was a massive day i think that day in court there was you know it's one of those times that crime stories don't just stay in the sunday world they were they grabbed everybody's attention um, but, you know, Larry Dunn received, a, I think, an unprecedented sentence at the time of 14 years. Um, you know, very, very long at the time. But it really brought to an end his days at the top, top of the, the criminal ladder. Um, and he, he never came out. And although he got in trouble again and had came a cropper with the law, he never came back to where he was. Not to that same extent. And interestingly, and this will be for another day, but just to touch on it, that in the background, as he was being led away and uh, being jailed, was one Christy Kinnahan, who was watching Larry Dunn's demise and planning his own um, empire. And uh, he was there, ready, waiting unable to step into the vacuum left by Larry Dunn. But again, that'll be, his story will be for another day. Um, after Dunn was jailed, he he did get out of jail around the end of the, uh, sorry, mid-1990s, I think around 1995, he got out of jail and he went initially to England. Um, so he did somewhat re-establish himself or at least try to, I think he moved in with a relative over there Around the late 90s, he was put on trial for a number of offences, one relating to the robbery of a building society. So he was back to his old ways there. And there had been a a man killed at another occasion and he was acquitted um, on charges he he was put up on in regard to that. But as I was researching this the other day, I found a story I wrote in January of 1999, right? And um, the headline on it was, you planker, drug kingpin gets three months for assault on detective. Um, and it was obviously, I was writing for one of the uh, the tabloids at the time. But anyway, yes, he yes. had been basically caught back in Dublin and these 
there was a raid on an apartment that was owned by a relative of his. And when the guardie burst in, they found Larry Dunn there. He was actually staying there. And him and his relative or his his associate had, you know, what well, he picked up this 15-foot plank and tried to hit the guards with it, claiming later that he believed that they were vigilantes when they burst in and that he was going to be killed. Um, but it was amazing. They were amazed at the time. I remember speaking to some of the... Uh, some of the officers at the time, they were amazed. He was back in Dublin, you know, he was such a big name. And he went to jail for about three months for that and he came back out. And he seemed to, what in modern, the modern world we'd call, he seemed to couch surf um, over the years after that. He moved from, you know, relatives would take him in. He pretty much hadn't a penny. I mean, there certainly wasn't any wealth left there. And he tried his hand at a little bit of dealing, a little bit of this, that and the other. Um, and he disappeared really off the radar, um, you know, into into oblivion. Into oblivion, yeah. I mean, he obviously had battled with addiction at various points, um, you know, and that, but certainly in the last long stretch of his life after, you know, he, he burnt out with all the, 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 the criminal behaviour and lived a very, very modest and quiet life, Um I think somebody was telling me that he was he would go down the bookies and that was that was the extent of it and he was living um in a in a cabin basically at the back of a, a property owned by his by his family in in the Rathfarnham area and uh, you know that was it. I actually called to his door one day um to see did he want to to talk to me and uh, he. Yeah, I had been told he was living in this property. I called up to the door, knocked on the door. He opened it. He took a minute and then he sort of sneered at me. Um, oh, Nicola, the reporter or whatever. And I just came out with a really stupid thing. I've regretted always <laughs> and evermore. I think I was doing some sort of a a special, probably um, one of your hot ideas. Uh, yes, aren't they always Gangland's, good? Yeah, Gangland's Greatest Losers. So we were sort of collecting the the types of characters who'd lost a lot of money or lost at all kind of thing. And he was one of them. And uh, I stupidly sort of said to him, you know, oh, you're at the top of our list of Gangland's Greatest Losers. What have you got to say about it? And he just slammed the door in my face as I, you know, I pretty much, I think, he deserved to. What a stupid thing to say. <laughs> anyway, I regretted it. I regretted it ever since. And... Um, you know, I don't think he was ever really going to talk to me, but if he ever was, I certainly blew it. Um, at no, he wasn't but inclined, I think, ever to talk to the media, unlike some of no. his, unlike some of the family, Thanks. you know. But, uh, but yeah, so, sure, if he could resist you, he could, he could have, nobody could have broken him down. But um, <laughs> Nobody but, could have broken him. Yeah. But to say that, like, I have to say that, you know, look, he had his own issues and a lot, lot of his associates and some of his family members suffered from addiction as well and all the rest of it. But there were still family towards the end who loved him and cared for him. And we should recognise that, you know, while we're talking about him and I'm sure, you know, that isn't something they want to happen. But the fact of the matter is he is significant person and what was going on around his, his rise um, as a as a drug lord and his fall is very significant for our social history and for an understanding really of what goes on. A lot of people will will fight back against us talking about individuals or identifying individuals and say, oh, well, if they weren't dealing, somebody else would be. 
Okay, that's perfectly true. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that Larry Dunn got rich, was the first untouchable drug lord and fell in a way to his own supply, his mistakes. There were plenty of others there to come in behind him, but he was somebody that um, is part and parcel of the story of the rise of organised crime in this country. Absolutely. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, there be there was actually, I remember after he died, there was, you know, very, you know, sincere tributes from his family, um, you know, and... You know, uh, but yeah, the, the the rise, the heroin epidemic, no doubt though, was was also, although it's a social, there, there, there's social reasons why these things occur. The individual actions play a part in these things as well. Um, and and Larry Dunn, you know, I suppose he never shook the, the consequences of his own actions during his life. Um, but yeah, it was a sad end. And of course, the the in within his own family. Um, not to get into specifics, but there was, you know, the 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 impact of heroin was, you know, had a devastating impact on people within his own family as well, which is another sad uh, uh, part of the whole story. Now, in early 2019, he was diagnosed, we heard, at his inquest with lung cancer and um, his death was at his own hand. He had been seen by a passerby outside in the front garden of a house where he was living and the passerby realised that there was something wrong and ambulance personnel were called. He had injured himself, was taken to hospital, having refused any help whatsoever from paramedics. He, he I think he said, and it was stated in the inquest, that he, he said he didn't want help, he wanted to die. He was ready to, to, to die. Yeah, he seemed to have um, suffered... Uh, been di- according to the inquest, he had di- been diagnosed with lung cancer in 2019 and had not sought treatment at all. Um, so, yeah, it, there was a, actually a doctor passing by had found him after he suffered self-inflicted knife wounds and attempted to help him, but he hadn't wanted help. Um, and he, he, you know, he was given, obviously brought to hospital, given treatment, but passed away. And, you know, it was, he was... 72 he looked uh, i think in recent pictures he still looked very healthy and and quite dapper but um you know and that was that was the uh the sad end of larry dunn mm, mm, the end of an era okay now well, maybe we might come back someday to that uh story about the that certain chap that was waiting in the wings to take over from or we could do a special um, on your your worst door knocks as well <laughs> I know, no, that was the worst. That was the worst. That was the worst. We all have regrets in life, you know? We do. Yeah. Should have gone at that a different way, Niall. I know. I know the feeling. Yeah. For the moment, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime... Why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.